15. In Gate, it was long and obstinately contested, the combat was not simply for the supremacy of a party, the very existence of Rome was at stake. For Pontius had declared that he would raise the city to the ground. The left wing, where Sulla commanded in person, was driven off the field by the vehemence of the enemy's charge, but the success of the right wing, which was commanded by Crossus, enabled Sulla to restore the battle, and at length gain a complete victory. Fifty thousand men were said to have fallen on each side. All the most distinguished leaders of the Marian party either perished in the engagement, or were taken prisoners and put to death. Among these was the brave Samnite Pontius, whose head was cut off and carried under the walls of Prenist, thereby announcing to the young Marius that his last hope of succor was gone. To the Samnite prisoners Sulla showed no mercy. He was resolved to root out of the peninsula those heroic enemies of Rome. On the third day after the battle he collected all the Samnite and Lucanian prisoners in the Campus Martis, and ordered his soldiers to cut them down. The dying shrieks of so many victims frightened the senators, who had been assembled at the same time by Sulla in the Temple of Bologna, but he bade them attend to what he was saying, and not mind what was taking place outside, as he was only chastising some rebels. Prenus surrendered soon afterward. The Romans in the town were pardoned, but all the Samnites and Prenistans were massacred without mercy. The younger Marius put an end to his own life. The war in Italy was now virtually at an end, for the few towns which still held out had no prospect of offering any effectual opposition, and were reduced soon afterward. In other parts of the Roman world the war continued still longer, and Sulla did not live to see its completion. The armies of the Marian party in Sicily and Africa were subdued by Pompey in the course of the same year, but Sertorius in Spain continued to defy all the attempts of the Senate till B.C. 72. Sulla was now master of Rome. He had not commenced the civil war, but had been driven to it by the mad ambition of Marius. His enemies had attempted to deprive him of the command in the Mithridatic War, which had been legally conferred upon him by the Senate, and while he was writing the battles of the Republic they had declared him a public enemy, confiscated his property, and murdered the most distinguished of his friends and adherents. For all these wrongs Sulla had threatened to take the most ample vengeance, and he more than redeemed his word. He resolved to extirpate the popular party root and branch. One of his first acts was to draw up a list of his enemies who were to be put to death, which list was exhibited in the forum to public inspection, and called a proscriptio. It was the first instance of the kind in Roman history. All persons in this list were outlaws who might be killed by anyone with impunity, their property was confiscated to the state. Their children and grandchildren lost their votes in the commissia, and were excluded from all public offices. Farther, all who killed a proscribed person, or indicated the place of his concealment, received two talents as a reward, and whoever sheltered such a person was punished with death. Terror now reigned not only at Rome, but throughout Italy. Fresh lists of the proscribed constantly appeared. No one was safe, for Sulla gratified his friends by placing in the fatal lists their personal enemies or persons whose property was coveted by his adherents, an estate, a house, or even a piece of plate, was to many a man, who belonged to no political party, his death warrant, for, although the confiscated property belonged to the state, and had to be sold by public auction, the friends and dependents of Sulla purchased it at a nominal price, as no one dared to bid against them, oftentimes Sulla did not require the purchase money to be paid at all, and in many cases he gave such property to his favorites without even the formality of a sale. The number of persons who perished by the proscriptions amounted to many thousands, 
at the commencement of these horrors Sulla had been appointed dictator, as both the consuls had perished, he caused the senate to elect Valerius Flaccus into Rex, and the latter brought before the people a rogadio, conferring the dictatorship upon Sulla, for the purpose of restoring order to the republic, and for as long a time as he judged to be necessary. Thus the dictatorship was revived after being in abeyance for more than 120 years, and Sulla obtained absolute power over the lives and fortunes of all the citizens. This was toward the close of B.C. 81. Sulla's great object in being invested with the dictatorship was to carry into execution in a legal manner the great reforms which he meditated in the constitution and the administration of justice, by which he hoped to place the government of the republic on a firm and secure basis. He had no intention of abolishing the republic, and consequently he caused consuls to be elected for the following year, B.C. 81, and was elected to the office himself in B.C. 80, while he continued to hold the dictatorship. At the beginning of B.C. 81 Sulla celebrated a splendid triumph on account of his victory over Mithridates, in a speech which he delivered to the people at the close of the gorgeous ceremony. He claimed for himself the surname of Felix as he attributed his success in life to the favor of the gods, all ranks in Rome bowed in awe before their master, and among other marks of distinction which were voted to him by the obsequious senate, a gilt equestrian statue was erected to his honor before the rostra, bearing the inscription, Cornelius Sully Imperatori Philissi. During the years B.C. 80 and 79 Sulla carried into execution his various reforms in the constitution, of which an account is given at the end of this chapter. At the same time he established many military colonies throughout Italy. The inhabitants of the Italian towns which had fought against Sulla were deprived of the full Roman franchise which had been lately conferred upon them, their lands were confiscated and given to the soldiers who had fought under him. A great number of these colonies were settled in Etruria. They had the strongest interest in upholding the institutions of Sulla, since any attempt to invalidate the latter would have endangered their newly acquired possessions. Though they were a support to the power of Sulla, they hastened the fall of the commonwealth, an idle and licentious soldiery supplanted an industrious agricultural population, and Catline found nowhere more adherents than among the military colonies of Sulla, while Sulla thus established throughout Italy a population devoted to his interests. He created at Rome a kind of bodyguard for his protection by giving the citizenship to a great number of slaves belonging to those who had been proscribed by him. The slaves thus rewarded are said to have been as many as 10.000, and were called Cornelii after him as their patron. Sulla had completed his reforms by the beginning of B.C. 79, and as he longed for the undisturbed enjoyment of his pleasures, he resigned his dictatorship, and declared himself ready to render an account of his conduct while in office. This voluntary abdication by Sulla of the sovereignty of the Roman world has excited the astonishment and admiration of both ancient and modern writers, but it is evident that Sulla never contemplated, like Julius Caesar, the establishment of a monarchical form of government, and it must be recollected that he could retire into a private station without any fear that attempts would be made against his life or his institutions. The 10,000 Cornelii at Rome and his veterans stationed throughout Italy as well as the whole strength of the aristocratical party, secured him against all danger. Even in his retirement his will was law, and shortly before his death he ordered his slaves to strangle a magistrate of one of the towns in Italy because he was a public defaulter. After resigning his dictatorship, Sulla retired to his estate at Puteoli, and there, surrounded by the beauties of nature and art, he passed the remainder of his life in those literary and sensual enjoyments in which he had always taken so much pleasure.
he died in B.C. 78, in the 60th year of his age. The immediate cause of his death was the rupture of a blood vessel, but some time before he had been suffering from the disgusting disease which is known in modern times by the name of Morbus Pediculosius, the Senate, faithful to the last, resolved to give him the honor of a public funeral. This was, however, opposed by the consul Lepidus, who had resolved to attempt the repeal of Sulla's laws, but the dictator's power continued unshaken even after his death. The veterans were summoned from their colonies, and Cucatulus, El Lucullus, and Sin, Pompey placed themselves at their head. Lepidus was obliged to give way, and allowed the funeral to take place without interruption. It was a gorgeous pageant. The magistrates, the senate, the equites, the priests, and the vestal virgins, as well as the veterans, accompanied the funeral procession to the Campus Martis, where the corpse was burned according to the wish of Sulla himself, who feared that his enemies might insult his remains, as he had done those of Marius, which had been taken out of the grave and thrown into the Anio at his command. It had been previously the custom of the Cornelia generals to bury and not burn their dead. A monument was erected to Sulla in the Campus Martis, the inscription on which he is said to have composed himself. It stated that none of his friends ever did him a kindness, and none of his enemies a wrong, without being fully repaid. All the reforms of Sulla were effected by means of legs, which were proposed by him in the Comitia Centuriata, and bore the general name of Legs Cornelii. They may be divided into four classes, laws relating to the Constitution, to the ecclesiastical corporations, to the administration of justice, and to the improvement of public morals. Their general object and design was to restore as far as possible, the ancient Roman constitution, and to give again to the Senate and the nobility that power of which they had been gradually deprived by the leaders of the popular party. His constitution did not last, because the aristocracy were thoroughly selfish and corrupt, and exercised the power which Sulla had entrusted to them only for their own aggrandizement. Their shameless conduct soon disgusted the provinces as well as the capital, the people again regained their power but the consequence was an anarchy and not a government, and as neither class was fit to rule, they were obliged to submit to the dominion of a single man. Thus the empire became a necessity to the exhausted Roman world. By laws relating to the constitution, Sulla deprived the Comitia Tribuna of their legislative and judicial powers, but he allowed them to elect the tribunes, aediles, quaestors, and other inferior magistrates. This seems to have been the only purpose for which they were called together. The Comitia Centuriata, on the other hand, were allowed to retain their right of legislation and impaired. He restored, however, the ancient regulation, which had fallen into desuetude, that no matter should be brought before them without the previous sanction of a senator's consultum. The Senate had been so much reduced in numbers by the proscriptions of Sulla, that he was obliged to fill up the vacancies by the election of 300 new members, but he made no alteration in their duties and functions as the whole administration of the state was in their hands, and he gave them the initiative in legislation by requiring a previous senator's consultum respecting all measures that were to be submitted to the commissia. As already stated, with respect to the magistrates, Sulla increased the number of quaestors from 8 to 20, and of praetors from 6 to 8. He renewed the old law that no one should hold the praetorship before he had been quaestor, nor the consulship before he had been praetor. He also renewed the law that no one should be elected to the same magistracy till after the expiration of ten years. One of the most important of Sulla's reforms related to the tribunate, which he deprived of all real power. 
he took away from the tribunes the right of proposing arrogation of any kind to the tribes, or of impeaching any person before them, and he appears to have limited the right of intercession to their giving protection to private persons against the unjust decisions of magistrates, as, for instance, in the enlisting of soldiers, to degrade the tribunate still lower, Sulla enacted that whoever had held this office forfeited thereby all right to become a candidate for any of the higher cruel offices, in order that all persons of rank, talent, and wealth might be deterred from holding an office which would be a fatal impediment to arising any higher in the state. He also required persons to be senators before they could become tribunes. I.I. Laws relating to the ecclesiastical corporations. Sulla repealed the Lex Domitia, which gave to the Comitia Tribune the right of electing the members of the great ecclesiastical corporations, and restored to the latter the right of company optatio, or self-election. At the same time, he increased the number of pontiffs and augurs to fifteen respectively. I.I.I. Laws relating to the administration of justice. Sulla established permanent courts for the trial of particular offenses, in each of which a praetor presided. A precedent for this had been given by the Lex Calpornia of the Tribunal Calpornis Piso, in B.C. 149, by which it was enacted that a praetor should preside at all trials for repetundi during his year of office. This was called a questio perpetua, and nine such questions perpetuae were established by Sulla, namely, de repetundis, majestatis, de sicarius et beneficis, de parricidio, peculatus, ambitus, de nomis adulterinis, de falsis or testamentaria, and de vi publica. Jurisdiction in civil cases was left to the praetor peregrinus and the praetor urbanus as before, and the other six praetors presided in the questions, but as the latter were more in number than the praetors, some of the praetors took more than one questio, or a judex questionis was appointed. The praetors, after their election, had to draw lots for their several jurisdictions. Sulla enacted that the judices should be taken exclusively from the senators, and not from the equites, the latter of whom had possessed this privilege, with a few interruptions, from the law of C. Gracchus, in B.C. 123. This was a great gain for the aristocracy, since the offenses for which they were usually brought to trial, such as bribery, malversation, and the like, were so commonly practiced by the whole order, that they were, in most cases, nearly certain of acquittal from men who required similar indulgence themselves. Sulla's reform in the criminal law, the greatest and most enduring part of his legislation, belongs to a history of Roman law, and cannot be given here. I.V. Laws relating to the improvement of public morals. Of these we had very little information. One of them was a lex sumptuaria, which enacted that not more than a certain sum of money should be spent upon entertainments, and also restrained extravagance in funerals. There was likewise a law of Sulla respecting marriage, the provisions of which are quite unknown, as it was probably abrogated by the Julian law of Augustus. Illustration, coin of Sulla. On the obverse is the head of Sulla, on the reverse that of Q. Pompeius Rufus, his colleague in his first consulship. Chapter XXIX. From the death of Sulla to the consulship of Pompey and Cresius. B.C. 78-70. Sulla was scarcely dead before an attempt was made to overthrow the aristocratic constitution which he had established. The consul and Lepidus had already, as we have seen, endeavored to prevent the burial of Sulla in the Campus Martis. He now proposed to repeal the dictator's laws, but the other consul, Q. Catulus, remained firm to the aristocracy and offered the most strenuous opposition to the measures of his colleague. Shortly afterward the Senate ordered Lepidus to repair to Farther Gaul, 
which had been assigned to him as his province, but he availed himself of the opportunity to collect an army in Etruria, and at the beginning of the following year marched straight upon Rome. The Senate assembled in army, which they placed under the command of Cucatulus, with Pompey as his lieutenant. A battle was fought near the Mulvian Bridge, in which Lepidus was defeated, and, finding it impossible to maintain his footing in Italy, he sailed with the remainder of his forces to Sardinia, where he died soon afterward. Meantime the remainder of the Marian party found refuge in Spain. Cusertoris, one of the ablest of their generals, had received the government of this country in the year B.C. 82. He soon acquired an extraordinary ascendancy over the minds of the natives, and flattered them with the hope of establishing an independent state which might bid defiance to Rome. His influence was enhanced by the superstition of the people. He was accompanied on all occasions by a tame fawn, which they believed to be a familiar spirit. So attached did they become to his person, that he found no difficulty in collecting a formidable army, which for some years successfully opposed all the power of Rome. After defeating several generals whom Sulla had sent against him, he had to encounter, in B.C. 79, Cunitalus, who had been consul the previous year with Sulla. But Metellus did not fare much better than his predecessors, and in B.C. 78 Sertorius was reinforced by a considerable body of troops which Perperna carried with him into Spain after the defeat of Lepidus. The growing power of Sertorius led the Senate to send Pompey to the assistance of Metellus. Pompey, though only thirty years of age, was already regarded as the ablest general of the Republic, and as he played such a prominent part in the later history, we may here pause to give a brief account of his early career. Pompey was born B.C. 106, and was, as we have already seen, the son of Sion, Pompeius Strabo, who fought against the Italians in his consulship. B.C. 89, the young Pompey served under his father in this war, when he was only 17 years of age, and continued with him till his death two years afterward. He was present at the Battle of the Colline Gate in B.C. 87, and shortly afterward he saved the life of his father and quelled an insurrection of the soldiers by his courage and activity. As soon as Sulla had finished the Mithridatic War, and was on his way to Italy, Pompey, instead of waiting, like the other leaders of the aristocracy, for the arrival of their chief, resolved to share with him the glory of crushing the Marian party. Accordingly, he proceeded to levy troops in Picenum without holding any public office, and such was his personal influence that he was able to raise an army of three legions. Before joining Sulla he gained a brilliant victory over the Marian generals, and was received by Sulla with the greatest distinction. Upon the conclusion of the war in Italy Pompey was sent first into Sicily, and afterward into Africa, where the Marian party still held out. His success was rapid and decisive. In a few months he reduced the whole of Numidia, and, and like other Roman governors, abstained from plundering the province. His military achievements and his ability procured him the greatest renown and he returned to Rome covered with glory B.C. 80. Numbers flocked out of the city to meet him, and the dictator himself, who formed one of the crowd, greeted him with the surname of Magnus or the Great, which he bore ever afterward. Sulla at first refused to let him triumph. Hither do no one but a dictator, consul, or praetor had enjoyed this distinction, but as Pompey insisted upon the honor, Sulla gave way, and the young general entered Rome in triumph as a simple ex and before he had completed his 25th year, Pompey again exhibited his power in promoting, in B.C. 79, the election of Emilius Lepidus to the consulship, in opposition to the wishes of Sulla. The latter had now retired from public affairs, 
and contented himself with warning Pompey, as he met him returning from the Comitia in triumph. Young man, it is time for you not to slumber, for you have strengthened your rival against yourself. Lepidus seems to have reckoned upon the support of Pompey, but in this he was disappointed, for Pompey remained faithful to the aristocracy, and thus saved his party. He fought at the Mulvian Bridge against Lepidus, as we have already related, and afterward marched into Cisalpine Gaul against the remains of his party. The Senate, who now began to dread Pompey, ordered him to disband his army, but he found various excuses for evading this command, as he was anxious to obtain the command of the war against Sertoris in Spain. They hesitated, however, to give him this opportunity for gaining fresh distinction and additional power, and it was only in consequence of the increasing power of Sertoris that they at length unwillingly determined to send Pompey to Spain, with the title of proconsul, and with powers equal to Metellus. Pompey arrived in Spain in B.C. 76. He soon found that he had a more formidable enemy to deal with than any he had yet encountered. He suffered several defeats, and, though he gained some advantages, yet such were his losses that at the end of two years he was obliged to send to Rome for reinforcements. The war continued three years longer, but Sertorius, who had lost some of his influence over the Spanish tribes, and who had become an object of jealousy to Emperor Perna and his principal Roman officers, was unable to carry on operations with the same vigor as during the two preceding years. Pompey accordingly gained some advantages over him, but the war was still far from a close, and the genius of Sertorius would probably have soon given a very different aspect to affairs had he not been assassinated by Perperna in B.C. 72. Perperna had flattered himself that he should succeed to the power of Sertorius, but he soon found that he had murdered the only man who was able to save him from ruin. In his first battle with Pompey he was completely defeated, his principal officer slain, and himself taken prisoner, anxious to save his life. He offered to deliver up to Pompey the papers of Sertorius, containing letters from many of the leading men at Rome, but Pompey refused to see him, and commanded the letters to be burnt. The war was now virtually at an end, and the remainder of the year was employed in subduing the towns which still held out against Pompey. Metellus had taken no part in the final struggle with Perperna, and Pompey thus obtained the credit of bringing the war to a conclusion. The people longed for his return, that he might deliver Italy from Spartacus and his horde of gladiators, who had defeated the consuls, and were in possession of a great part of the peninsula. A righteous retribution had overtaken the Romans for their love of the cruel sports of the amphitheatre. The gladiators were generally prisoners taken in war and sold to persons who trained them in schools for the Roman games. There was such a school at Capua, and among the gladiators was a Thracian of the name of Spartacus, originally a chief of banditti, who had been taken prisoner by the Romans, and was now destined to be butchered for their amusement. Having prevailed upon about seventy of his comrades, he burst out of the school with them, succeeded in obtaining arms, and took refuge in the crater of Vesuvius. At that time an extinct volcano B.C. 73, here he was soon joined by large numbers of slaves, who flocked to him from all quarters. He was soon at the head of a formidable army. The desolation of the social and civil wars had depopulated Italy, while the employment of slave labor furnished Spartacus with an endless supply of soldiers. In addition to this, the war with Sertorius was not yet finished, and that with Mithridates, of which we shall speak presently, had already commenced. For upward of two years Spartacus was master of Italy, which he laid waste from the foot of the Alps to the southernmost corner of the peninsula. 
in BC 72 he found himself at the head of 100.000 men, and defeated both consuls, as the consuls of the following year had no military reputation, the conduct of the war was entrusted to the praetor, M. Licinius Crossus, who had greatly distinguished himself in the wars of Sulla, he had been rewarded by the dictator with donations of confiscated property, and had accumulated an immense fortune. Six legions were now given him in addition to the remains of the consular armies already in the field. The Roman troops were disheartened and disorganized by defeat, but Crossus restored discipline by decimating the soldiers. Spartacus was driven to the extreme point of Bratime. Crossus drew strong lines of circumvallation around Regium, and by his superior numbers prevented the escape of the slaves. Spartacus now attempted to pass over to Sicily, where he would have been welcomed by thousands of followers. He failed in the attempt to cross the straits, but at length succeeded in forcing his way through the lines of Crossus. The Roman general hastened in pursuit, and in Lucania fell in with the main body of the fugitives. A desperate battle ensued, in which Spartacus perished, with the greater part of his followers. About 6,000 were taken prisoners, whom Crossus impaled on each side of the Appian road between Rome and Capua. A body of 5,000 made their way northward whom Pompey met as he was returning from Spain, and cut to pieces, Crossus had, in reality, brought the war to an end, but Pompey took the credit to himself, and wrote to the Senate, saying, Crossus, indeed, has defeated the enemy, but I have extirpated them by the roots, Pompey and Crossus now approached the city at the head of their armies, and each laid claim to the consulship, neither of them was qualified by the laws of Sulla, Pompey was only in his 35th year, and had not even held the office of Quaestor. Crossus was still praetor, and two years ought to elapse before he could become consul. Pompey, however, agreed to support the claims of Crossus, and the Senate dared not offer open opposition due to generals at the head of powerful armies. Pompey, moreover, declared himself the advocate of the popular rights, and promised to restore the tribunitian power. Accordingly, they were elected consuls for the following year. Pompey entered the city in triumph on the 31st of December, B.C. 71, and Crossus enjoyed the honor of an ovation. The consulship of Pompey and Crossus B.C. 70 was memorable for the repeal of the most important portions of Sulla's constitutional reforms. One of Pompey's first acts was to redeem the pledge he had given to the people, by bringing forward a law for the restoration of the tribunitian power. The law was passed with little opposition for the Senate felt that it was worse than useless to contend against Pompey, supported as he was by the popular enthusiasm and by his troops, which were still in the immediate neighborhood of the city. He also struck another blow at the aristocracy. By one of Sulla's laws, the Judases, during the last ten years, had been chosen from the Senate. The corruption and venality of the latter in the administration of justice had excited such general indignation that some change was clamorously demanded by the people. Accordingly, the praetor L. Aurelius Cotus, with the approbation of Pompey, proposed a law by which the judices were to be taken in future from the Senate, Equites, and Tribuniarii, the latter probably representing the welfare members of the Third Order in the state. This law was likewise carried, but it did not improve the purity of the administration of justice, since corruption was not confined to the senators, but pervaded all classes of the community alike. Pompey had thus broken with the aristocracy and had become the great popular hero. In carrying both these measures he was strongly supported by Caesar, who, though he was rapidly rising in popular favor, 
could as yet only hope to awaken the power of the aristocracy through Pompey's means. Chapter XXX. Third O.R. Great and Mighty H.R.I.D.A.D.I.C. War. B.C. 74-61. When Sulla returned to Italy after the First Mithridatic War, he left Almyrna, with two legions, to hold the command in Asia. Myrna, who was eager for some opportunity of earning the honor of a triumph, pretending that Mithridates had not yet evacuated the whole of Cappadocia, not only marched into that country, but even crossed the Hollies, and laid waste the plains of Pontus itself B.C. 83. To this flagrant breach of the treaty so lately concluded the Roman general was in great measure instigated by Archelaus, who, finding himself regarded with suspicion by Mithridates, had consulted his safety by flight, and was received with the utmost honors by the Romans. Mithridates, who was wholly unprepared to renew the contest with Rome, offered no opposition to the progress of Myrna, but finding that general disregard his remonstrances, he sent to Rome to complain of his aggression. When, in the following spring B.C. 82, he saw Myrna preparing to renew his hostile incursions, he at once determined to oppose him by force, and assembled a large army, with which he met the Roman general on the banks of the Hollies. The action that ensued terminated in the complete victory of the king, and Myrna, with difficulty, effected his retreat into Phrygia, leaving Cappadocia at the mercy of Mithridates, who quickly overran the whole province. Shortly afterward a Gabinese arrived in Asia, bringing peremptory orders from Sulla to Myrna to desist from hostilities, whereupon Mithridates once more consented to evacuate Cappadocia. Thus ended what is commonly called the Second Mithridatic War. Notwithstanding the interpositon of Sulla, Mithridates was well aware that the peace between him and Rome was in fact only suspension of hostilities, and that the haughty Republic would never suffer the massacre of her citizens in Asia to remain ultimately unpunished. Hence all his efforts were directed toward the formation of an army capable of contending, not only in numbers, but in discipline, with those of Rome, and with this view he armed his barbarian troops after the Roman fashion, and endeavored to train them up in that discipline of which he had so strongly felt the effect in the preceding contest. In these attempts he was doubtless assisted by the refugees of the Marian party, who had accompanied Fimbria into Asia, and on the defeat of that general by Sulla had taken refuge with the king of Pontus at their instigation, also, myth.